thanks for joining us today, Arturo. Um, to kick things off, can you give us a brief introduction of yourself and your background? Uh, yes, thank you for having me. Um, Arturo Loaiza Bonilla, um, medical oncologist by background and the co-founder and chief medical officer of Massive Bio. Um, active researcher, I you know I still want to be in practice so I can you know feel the the pain points that we have on a daily basis to help our patients and everyone else in the ecosystem. Uh, so um, I'm very happy to be here and thank you for the time. What inspired you to do a career in medicine, Arturo? There was no physician in my family. Now um, I was the first out of several more that came after out of the inspiration that we had because my grandfather from my mom's side, I mean we were like a big family. He had like nine kids uh, and a bunch of grandchildren, and I, I, I was the eldest of, of the of the grandchildren. And um, my grandfather was always very strong, very sturdy. Uh, he just was never willing to go to a doctor uh, because he said, you know, I don't need to. I'm just going to manage. And uh, he was in the you know in the, in the military for a while, and then he. I started working um, now then as an accountant and he started to study himself more and and settle down in Bogota, which is the main capital. And mm-hmm. um, while he was dealing with that, he suffered from gout, which is, you know, a very benign condition. You know, people just take hochicine or, or allopurinol and they, you know, get rid of their uric acid and they change their diet, but he never, you know, wanted to see a doctor. And because of that, he just kept taking insects, uh, which is basically ibuprofen or, you know, mm. um, medications as such. And he ended up damaging his kidneys. Uh, so he was in dialysis. So and to me, that was so dramatic when I saw him when I, I was a teenager going through that. And I said, after, after I learned further, is like this could have been so preventable yeah. if we had at least one family member that actually was in the medical field. Everyone else, uh, you know, my, my grandfather just got them all into through college, but they were all in, you know, administration stuff and, and you know, MBAs and things, nothing to do with medicine. So they kind of like, no one was really investing on it. Uh, and I said, you know, even though I was pretty young, I said, I want to be a doctor just to prevent this from happening ever again to any member of my family, uh, kind of like being the family doctor, literally. So <laughs> um, <laughs> so that's that's how I got into medicine. Uh, I started quite young. So um was 16 when I first oh, wow. uh, got into medical school and started, uh, you know, learning the whole thing. And it's been several decades since then, um, and 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 further you know, oncology and beyond. And why oncology? What led you from medicine to specialize in oncology? Well, you know, it's one of those things that also um, happen sometimes by you know serendipity, uh, and also um, you know. Uh, there's something that pushes you to go further into a field. So I always wanted to be a physician for adults. So after I finished my medical school in Colombia, I saved all the money that I got, like a little scholarship that I had at the end uh, to pay for my first test. So I came to the U.S. with that. And as I was training in Baltimore, I was doing epigenetics in leukemia at Hopkins. And at that time, my brother had diagnosis of leukemia. So I was already kind of in the field, but now have even further interest on working on on the specific you know understanding of leukemia and how it came about and all that mm. um so i uh, i said you know this is what i wanted to to do i was between you know gi and oncology and now i do a lot of gi oncology so kind of combine them two kind of went back a bit with uh, but um it, it was one of those things that i said you know i need to know how to help my family further now in this too. 
and and uh, it, it was really helpful to me. So that I got into oncology and and biomarkers and understanding clinical trials and how to navigate you know a lot of things that happen when you are not only uh, uh, you know someone who has the knowledge clinically but also um, understanding what happens with a you know you know loved one or or being a caregiver of someone. So um, so that was part of it. And one of the reasons why I ended up moving to Miami from Baltimore was meant to stay there. Uh, but I, uh, I decided to go to the University of Miami uh, for, uh, for training. It was much easier mm -hmm. to go back and forth to Columbia. And uh, I love that program too. So it was kind of like a perfect combo uh, for me to further my, my knowledge in HEMOC. Fantastic. Cool. Fantastic. And what you find most rewarding about your work? Helping someone, even if you cannot cure them or be the, you know, the best solution uh, that we can provide, just having that, you know, human interaction with them. And then, yeah. you know, I'm all into AI and all that stuff, but I still know for a fact that the human component is so important and mm -hmm. how we're helping, you know, patients and families just to even understanding, you know, their disease or finding that biomarker that the patient actually matches to and put the patient on the treatment and then they have a good response. Mm -hmm. uh, to me, those are like rewarding things. Uh, just in uh, one of the reasons why I stay still in practice, I just saw yesterday a patient of mine. You know, she's always allows me to talk about her. You know, if keep I want to say her name or anything, but uh, uh, she's a patient that I had been following um, uh, for about five years now with colorectal cancer metastatic, mm -hmm. and she's followed me in three institutions just because we we had this relationship and. Um, and it's all about biomarker-based treatment. So she was meant to go on hospice, uh, and I decided to do a liquid biopsy on her, and she had a biomarker that she was, you know, MSI high and 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 be refutated. And uh, she's been responding to immunotherapy, and more recently to targeted uh, combination as well. Um, and, and and that thing, knowing that she's now still. Uh, over 85 and being able to still do her things. She still cooks by herself. She goes and sees her friends uh, and she sees me always this big smile in the office. Uh, that is one of the things I, I look back and say, okay, this is what I wanted to be in this field. Uh, even though we cannot help uh, 100% everyone with all their needs, we can do a little bit of glimmer of hope uh, to accomplish something for them. Very good. Excellent. And then what led you to found Massive Bio? Um, so yeah, Massive Bio uh, came about, I, I uh, after University of Miami, I moved to, um, I was recruited at, as faculty at UPenn uh, and joined the Everson Cancer Center as a GI oncologist. And um, I was doing, I did a master's in medical education as well at the, um, at the graduate school. And while I was there, I started to go deeper into, you know, education about clinical trials as I was doing research as well. And uh, that was the, the age where biomarkers were coming, like NGS was uh, becoming more relevant at the time. No one had even put in the curriculum for fellows uh, to learn about NGS and how to interpret those results. And all these new trials with biomarker-based treatment options were coming about. And I saw a big opportunity because many of my patients who were coming to see me uh, in, uh, you know, very good cancer center, uh, unfortunately, were already heavily pretreated. They hmm. had 
they had seen me as the last resort, right? So it's like after I had been treated in the community, which is, you know, right now I have community practice uh, oncologists, um, we tend to keep our patients closer to home, right? Mm -hmm. and, and patients prefer to be closer to homes because they're dealing with cancer. So uh, clinical trials don't really come easy to those patients because they're not close to the facility that offers them and physicians in the community as they don't subspecialize because there's no way to do that, right? Then uh, clinical trials becomes almost like an afterthought. You know, it's like, oh, this gives standard of care. And then when they see a uh, center that actually looking for trials is only like, you know, Hail Mary. This is the last thing I want to do. And, and, and that, you know, creates, a, a, you know, it's almost like a self-fulfilled prophecy that, you know, a trial is not going to work out because you're already too late. Yeah, While yeah. if we did the flip uh, of seeing clinical trials as a, a standard of care option from the very beginning across the cancer journey, we have a much better chances of, of getting that patient in, this, in the clinical trial, benefiting the patient itself, uh, himself or herself, and also improving the R&D industry. So uh, as I went deeper into this, I realized that um, this crazy statistic, which to me is a paradox, right? So 0.1% of patients enrolled in clinical trials uh, out of 12 million patients that were diagnosed in the last decade, but that 0.1% live longer, uh, you know, better lives, probably uh, less expensive, uh, you know, treatments as well, yeah. and still got the best out of it. Uh, while the 99.9% .9 just went along with whatever they needed to do, um, but the studies are closing about 50 to 60% of them because of lack of approval. Hmm. And they say that there is like too many studies. I'm like, I don't believe so because there's so many patients. <laughs> so uh, of course there could be an abundance of study at a given time for a specific disease uh, because that's the one that the, or the mechanism of action of, of the, that is, uh, you know, really RNDS like focus on it. There's a checkpoint inhibitors or something like that at some point that everyone was doing the same. Uh, hmm. Yeah, of course there could be a lot of trials for that only. And that became the thing, but if you look at cancer as a whole, there is so much opportunity and gaps that patients don't know about treatments. So that is one of the things that inspired me. And I met Celine, which is my other co-founder, and Chata, yeah. who is on the technical side, and came together and say, this is a solvable problem. This is not a new problem. And it's not like, oh my God, so brilliant, you have this new idea. No, this idea has been forever, but the time was right to actually use technology at scale and along with uh, concert services to get those patients to the, from point A to point B. And instead of using all those random funds on pamphlets and, and brochures that no one reads and the industry spends millions of dollars for no reason, let's use those funds to help that patient to you know, use technology to find treatment options in real time. So that's how, you know, Massive Bio came about. We started with virtual tumor boards, giving more treatment options beyond clinical trials, but then we super specialize in clinical trials because it's the only way we can really get the AI component up to speed and at scale. Uh, so um, I know it was a super long story, but that's that's how it came. Yeah, very good. And and what are the, like, I suppose, what are the services that address these challenges within Massive Bio? So the first thing is um, clinical trials and, and patient journeys are are in constant flux. So uh, one day I, a patient of mine could be eligible for a clinical trial, but tomorrow will not be because the study closes or mm. the site close to them is no longer available or open, 
or the FDA or the EMA, or whatever regulatory agency puts a hold on the study. Uh, and also the, uh, the even the insurance may change, right? And that can change the whole thing because now you're out of network and, and the budget has not been discussed, et cetera. Um, at the same time, the patient, you know, one day you have a good performance status and then maybe a week from now you end up in the hospital with an infection and now your performance status lowers. Yeah. Or your hemoglobin changes by, you know, one gram or, or your cancer progresses. And unfortunately you move from like first line to second line. Uh, and all that changes in real time, all this uh, options is like, you almost, it, like you, you have a future with all this potential, you know, realities or multiverses right now, which is one of them is a clinical trial journey. And one thing changes and immediately creates a paradox that changes you to a completely different direction, right? Yeah. So uh, the, the only way to control that is having uh, a real-time assessment of the, the criteria that is available in clinicaltrials.gov or any other data sources. We are working with pharmaceutical companies to actually get the protocols uh, so we can digitize them and use the data in a much more in higher fidelity than clinicaltrials.gov because yeah. as you may imagine, that can lack a lot of nuance. Uh, so you may say, oh, you're matching for a trial and then you go there and the study is not even available uh, because that never opened or the study closed many months ago on that side yeah. or the, the arm that you were eligible for out of the multiple arms of that study is no longer available because it completed this, this lot allocation. So all these different things can change. So what we're trying to do with this is overcome all that and become a solution that is you know automated, uh, automated for that purpose, at least for that data component that we can control. At the same time, we are able to collect data from electronic health systems, electronic health records. Right now we have the health exchanges. We can access some of those um, uh, records in real time as long as the patient signs the consent. So we're doing it patient-centric for that purpose. So the patient is at the center of the equation. They um, say, I wanna know about my clinical trial options. And then with that authorization, we can request records in real time to give them real-time updates and they don't have to be reliant on self-reported information because my patients, uh, as much as they wanna know about their cancers, they don't know, uh, you know, all the nuances of clinical trials. Even, uh, you know, some folks when I onboard them on Massive Bio to work with us, they need to learn a little bit further because you need to be a fully trained oncologist and, and researcher to know sometimes the minutia that comes along with those clinical trial pr uh, and protocols. So uh, it's, it's making it, basically you know you don't have to think about it you just come yeah. in here sign up and then you have your options ahead of you and this is the reason why you are eligible and at the same time the physicians like myself who are very busy in clinic you know instead of saying 30 patients a day and there is one patient who needs clinical trials well if you want to help that patient that's okay but that will take at least an hour of your day just to look for the trial available for the patient giving them a list of those options and then that's it. No one helps the patient to use that information to move from the next step in terms of health, right? So, uh, and, and we are so busy that we want to help the patient, but we, we, we don't have the ability to do this concierge for them. I mean, uh, because that's not even the incentives are not aligned. So that's one less patient coming to our clinic that we had to spend uh, doing this, you know, almost, you know, secretarial task that mm -hmm. someone or a system can do much more efficiently. So, so that's uh, you know the the multi-stakeholder 
approach to make it much easier for them to really get into trials and solve all those barriers that we're learning are emerging uh, as topics uh, to solve it, you know, this, this paradigm. So do you mean it, it, like when you say digitize the protocol, is it like integrated with EHR and auto selects patients based on their parameters or, or how is it, how does that work and how does it kind of help? Yeah, so uh, that's one of the potential use cases. So uh, the, the, the first thing we realized is that we can do that for example, there is a, a cancer center that uh, it has a lot of different trials, uh, or mm -hmm. it belongs to a network that has a lot of trials, like you know the U.S. Oncology Network or HCA or uh, etc. And I used to work at Instruments Centers of America in the past, so we had a lot of trials, but not open in every single place because it's almost impossible. Uh, but they were committed to research. So um, when we start, when we started, basically was exactly what you said. Uh, so we applied for an NCI uh, SBIR grant, and that was our first uh, not jumping into the, uh, you know, grant uh, acquisition and working with, mm. uh, you know, NIH and the NCI. We implemented that at Columbia University at the beginning, basically just doing what you said, uh, which is we um, embedded ourselves in their EHR instance, and then we, upon request, we can check if the patient is eligible for the trials internally as a priority, of course, because we want to keep retention and patients coming into there uh, and making sure that we don't miss any patients because it's my own experience that my colleague didn't know that I had the trial open, right? So even though they work with me yeah. and they were across the hallway, they are doing their own thing. So they don't know what studies do I have or not. Uh, and sometimes there are too many. So uh, first thing is retention. Um, and second, let's say the patient doesn't have any more options or there's more trials. They want to know if there's anything else across the, you know, the street. Uh, and we want to give them that nuance as well of additional information. So we um, um, that's that's one of the things we have done in the past, and we have availability to do that as well. We do that in the OUS as well in certain uh, in certain countries. So we do that in Spain, in Poland, um, where we go to the centers and and embed ourselves for that purpose. Um, if we uh, go, um, you know, in the U.S., things are more you know decentralized, so get a little bit more siloed. Um, and they don't want to pay because they see, uh, uh, you know, uh, this as a software we're selling them. And I never want to be like that. I never want to say mm. I'm selling you something. Mm. I want to be always like I'm helping you solve a fundamental problem in research. And this is a societal improvement by doing this. Yeah. So we said you don't have to pay anything. We are going to do it cloud based, but we need to use the right APIs with the electronic health records. So instead of us installing ourselves into a, into a health system, we are connected through some form of API so we can get every a request for a clinical trial matching and we can operate almost in near real time. Uh, you know, relying on faxes and, and back and forth information and all the stuff is great, but, but it's uh, mm -hmm. something that I want to overcome as much as I can. So, um, so we've been working basically uh, in a cloud-based uh, basis where either a physician can send a request for clinical trial matching with the patient's permission. So uh, that's one way. Yeah. Or we sign BAAs with the institutions as well. So we did that with the Oncology Institute. So basically uh, they have uh, 60 uh, practices across, you know, several, like in five states in the U.S. Uh, and, and they have tons of trials and but all of them kind of in different places. So for their own purpose, they realize that 
clinical trial is a way for them to do value-based care and to uh, also optimize the, you know, the, their portfolio. So they basically say, make send requests directly to us, and then we give them reports in real time as well for the physicians to look into and tell the patients. Uh, and sometimes even to move one place to the other for the patient itself, um, it, it's, it's a way to do this, uh, this approach. Excellent, very good. Yeah, could you, could you tell us a bit about your work in AI and oncology? Yeah, so um, it, it seems like now is the you know the topic of the day. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so at least I'm I'm proud to say that uh, we were working with AI before all the hype uh, because now it seems like I'm looking at my LinkedIn and everyone seems to be an AI expert. Right? <laughs> so yeah. which is I mean great if if that's the reality, but uh, um, uh, something that I was very passionate was in using technology, and I I wanted to be an, an engineer before. Uh, you know, uh, when before all this journey I was talking about with my family, yeah. I always thought that I wanted to be a, like a you know, computer scientist. Um, and I, I'm I, I'm not a computer scientist myself. I mean, I can don't yeah, don't don't think I'm like coding. I mean, I can code, but I had to learn Python as a, a you know a, a way older than I I should have learned it. But um, I always wanted to get there. But in Colombia, it. And when they when I said, "Oh, I want to be a computer scientist," oh, you're going to fix computers, like kind of putting them together. That was their that's what they yeah. thought I was going to do. So I was like pretty bummed about it. But uh, when I moved to the U.S., I saw okay, there's real potential in doing this. So um, as soon as we got into um, uh, you know doing our virtual tumor boards, uh, we said we need to use uh, you know different tools that come around to optimize our workflows, and and that's when we started using you know ontology base and you know corpus and and uh, also looking at um clinical trial matching using you know parametrization and we had to start using you know ocr and nlp and with with that came on the ai component of what we started doing you started with very basic tasks and then now uh with the emergence of large natural models uh so, such as you know chat gpt and uh, you know, now Gemini and, and Llama and all the stuff, uh, that really kind of made an explosion to it. So I, I was an enthusiast of it. I um, decided to study a little bit uh, of that in, at, at MIT, one of those extension courses. Uh, but um, uh, I, I really started to talk to people. And, and um, one of the things I realized is how much potential it has in oncology. So uh, I over the last probably four years, I've been dedicating myself to understand the different use cases of AI uh, for uh, oncology and for oncology research to optimize uh, operations and also to start looking into drug discovery and beyond. So it, it now the time is right because now I feel perfect. I mean, is that, okay, now everyone is talking about the things that I love to do uh, yeah. in the field. And, and, and some folks are like, you know, knowledgeable that we can have pretty interesting conversations and and I you know I welcome that movement so um I, I, right now uh, one of my main interests is to use uh, multimodal approaches to do prognostication in in terms of uh, you know you know clinical trials but also uh, when can we use this specific uh, information to do modification on on their cancer um, you know, you know, outcome. So can we use this for assessment of microbiome, for example? That's a main interest of mine um, because there's very interesting data coming up 
uh, that we can use that in real time. And, and it doesn't really develop, you don't need to develop a new drug for this. We just need to start looking at deeper into the patient's information. Uh, and in collaboration for, you know, uh, for example, making all these tasks that come with research much more efficient. There is so much work uh, and so many different touch points that need to happen just for recruitment, which is the before the signature of the consent, but mm -hmm. even after, um, you know, 67 steps prior uh, and, you know, almost the same number of channels that need to be leveraged so we can get one patient enrolled. Uh, plus, uh, then when the patient enrolls in the study, how we can keep the patient engaged and, and, and improve attention satisfaction and getting the right patient to the right trial. Um, so all that, you know, command center kind of Uber style of, of uh, assessment of what with cancer journeys and trials and physicians is what I am super interested in using AI for that purpose right now. Very good. And just a question on that, I suppose the, the, with, with the tech industry, like I, I, I suppose from a general sense, um, AI, like it's within a year, it's taken over in terms of every facet, it's coming in quite quickly. With the challenge in, in medicine, do you think like would, it, would the adoption, will it be similar to past kind of, will it be as slow in healthcare or do you think it will it be adopted quite quickly? So, uh, yeah, the, it's an interesting question because it depends on who you who you talk to, right? The, there's some folks who are really, really interested to adopt the technologies. Yeah. But uh, I think that this is something that um, at least, you know, the, the healthcare industry is not 100% ready to adopt because they don't, they, first of all, there's the regulatory environment is still pretty nebulous, uh, yeah. uh, particularly for AI and healthcare. And, and uh, once that happens, then you start coming around, like, are we, particularly around clinical decision support, uh, do we need to get that, you know, vetted by the FDA? And yeah. is the mm -hmm. FDA already into it in terms of use case, understands the nuances to the point that it doesn't become a hurdle for adoption, right? Because when things become too complicated, people are immediately shut off, right? It's yeah, like, yeah. well, you, you you guys are expert on that because you know exact engagement on using technology, right? So yeah. when they engage an app or something, you know, put imagine just even more meta than that, which is, uh, do I need to do these requirements just to get, uh, you know, access to that tool? People are gonna immediately start recalling. So um, I, I think that the, uh, at the end of the day, it's all about uh, the power of the incentives. So mm. is is like the insurance industry, CMS and payers ready to implement some of these solutions to optimize outcomes and be able to reimburse for some of those things so people feel more compelled to do so uh, uh, always. The other one is, um, are we making sure that the you know the physicians don't feel that they're being replaced by these tools because that's something that is always top of the mind of people and even in use cases such as radiology i i think there's still a lot of component of human that needs to happen uh it, it may make it you know faster for a radiologist to review images but they still have to have the clinical judgment that the machine doesn't have mm -hmm. and as far as we know even with gemini and gpt4 I don't think we have reached the level of AGI to be comfortable that they're gonna be able to answer all the questions. And they may say, oh yeah, we got you know near human uh, capabilities of understanding of data. Um, I 
I think that that is great for like big picture. Like, you know, I want to know about, you know, give me some the common features of pancreatic cancer. Okay, yeah, it's probably going to tell you the bulk of the information you need. And I think this is great for education and, and for us to make our lives easier to explain things and beyond. But if you want to go more in the clinical decision support, there's a lot of nuances uh, that yeah. go beyond that. And like, just for my patient, you know, transportation, that patient, my patient wasn't going to get into a therapy because the, she needed transport uh, for that specific drug. And hadn't been a human there to understand that and try to solve it in real time, that wouldn't have happened. So uh, I don't think an AI right now lists a full, you know, a hundred, like, you know, this, you know, uh, I don't know, like a data of, a, you know, a Star Trek, right? <laughs> kind of a person yeah. <laughs> that has all that, you know, multi-model, very in-depth, super specialized module that able to work for that patient uh, and able to switch from from one module to the other one that is appropriate for that use case. I don't think that that there's any, ever going to be a replacement for humans uh, and physicians as a as a whole. So uh, I think that all that long response was aimed to say that um, I think that we need to overcome that fear yeah. Uh, because we, we hear like, you know, we not cause that, you know, I respect him a lot, but he's like, oh, we're going to replace oncologists in like 10 years. I'm like, no, it's going to be a co-pilot of mine. I can tell you, I mean, even, even myself being an AI enthusiast, I don't see anything replacing the human interaction at any point. Yeah. Uh, so, so we'll, we'll see what happens, but um, I think what we, what's going to become is more about the um, initial adoption for like things like medical records and maybe recording of experiences in clinics. So you have that with Nuance and Microsoft and others kind of like in, putting that information in the EHR and making mm -hmm. some orders maybe like verbally, um, mm -hmm. but that's going to come with a cost. So are, we're already paying a ton of money for, you know, Epic and Cerner and, you know, all scripts and all the other EHR vendors. Are we going to pay also for the extra AI module? Um, it has to come mm. lower cost. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's true. Makes makes a lot of sense. <clears throat> and what do you see as the biggest challenges in oncology today beyond AI? And you know, like what going back to the basics. Yeah. So, um, well, the biggest challenges I believe uh, are sometimes simple. So one of the things that I've seen and I feel we can make a difference is in improving biomarker testing for our patients. Mm. And that's okay. such an easy, straightforward thing to do. I mean, of course, I can go super high, you know, uh, like four degree of, of assessment and, and talk about, you know, the use of specifics or the combinations of immunotherapy with self-adaptive therapy and AI and the use of CRISPR. I mean, yeah, those are very cool problems to solve and look into to improve, you know, cures, but we haven't even gone back to the basics, right? So I, I cannot automate something that it hasn't really been fully done by humans. <laughs> so, uh, because the models will emulate basically that. Um, so uh, one of the challenges I see is for example, in non-mole cell lung cancer, how is it possible that only half of the patients get ever tested for the biomarkers that already have a drug approved by the FDA? And yeah. it's not because we don't have the resources, the insurance pays for it. it we even as physicians don't even have to pay for those NGS tests. We don't, we don't get paid for them. 
So I think that's also part of the reason. I mean, we're like, oh, you know, I don't have to deal with the billing. So I don't even remember if I ordered the NGS on my patient. Yeah. Uh, how come we haven't even fully adopted liquid biopsies as a tool? Uh, mm. I talked to folks that, oh, no, I prefer tissue. Why? I mean, maybe for, you know, you're looking for RNA and specific fusions. Okay, yeah, perfect. Yeah, you're doing a glioblastoma. You don't want to do a liquid biopsy in that. But if you're looking for non-monocellular cancer, you can actually do tissue-based assays and liquid-based ctDNA and probably complete the equation because you're getting, you know, the 10% that each other misses and help the patient in front of you. But that it, we're not even there yet. We're not even testing the patients. And mm -hmm. when we test the patients, um, it, even worse is that the biomarker is there, but we don't treat the patient for that uh, with that biomarker uh, specific drug. Uh, and that is because of this information craziness that we had to deal with, that we have so many patients we forgot and then the biomarker remains there. And then the patient unfortunately passes away or it goes to a health system that is different and no one is checking on that. So making it patient-centric mm -hmm. uh, to me is so important. So that's why for me is uh, making uh, data much more accessible, but not in the way that other folks say, oh yeah, I'm democratizing data. I mean, that that's all you know, great, but like actionable data, are we yeah. gonna be able to help the patient and say, you need to get this biomarker testing at least once and have it on top of your head and, and having an automated system to let you know when a new drug is available and, and, and we physicians not being the, you know, the roadblock, not because we want to be, but because we're so busy that we need help and, and we're terrible at asking for help. <laughs> so we're like my, my grandfather, right? So it's like, oh no, no, I can do it. Okay, there you go, right? So we need to, uh, you know, try to be, uh, uh, you know, as helpful as possible, first ordering, you know, the right test for the right patients, but also uh, letting ourselves being held by some of this technology. So my, my main challenge is let's solve the house first with things that we can really make a difference. And then start looking for the more um, advanced questions. The good news is that we have the, you know, pharma focusing on those other questions uh, of innovation in terms of new drugs and mechanisms of action. And we have big meetings such as ASCO and ASH and ACR, mm -hmm. they're always posing those challenges. Uh, but I think we need to go back to basic principles, right? So fixing the, you know, the spaceship before we go to Mars. Uh, people are already in Mars, like trying to go there without oxygen, right? So <laughs> let's try to focus on on, on here. We're just, uh, with Celine, she always said, well, we're just a bicycle level of this. Uh, and mm -hmm. I think we can, we can really make it a rocket ship, but it needs to come from collaboration. It cannot be just one person or one company everyone needs to want to work together and, and find, see the big picture in the long run. And do you, yeah. do you actually think it's a hurdle? Like, like what kind of hurt, like what do you think it'll take for to shift that way to improve? Like, does it, will it take a lot of upfront or is there small shifts or small changes that are needed overall? Yeah. So I, I think that um, there is this sense of, um, ownership of the patient because we we care about mm. the patient so much because they you know we dedicated our lives we studied many years to to become good at taking care of patients that we almost have this you know you know paternalistic maternalistic yeah, yeah. way of seeing patients so and the patients also on the other side is like, i don't want to i don't want to even 
ask questions because my doctor knows. I mean, uh, some patients are super advocates for themselves, but most of them are not. They like, whatever you say, doc, I'll take care of it. Well, the change that we can do is first, you know, setting a tool or something that is going to help that patient all the time and giving us updates so we are aware of this, but also mm. removing the challenges that we have to deal with, which is clicking and sending requests and prioritization. So uh, it, it needs, for example, for this biomarker thing, we need a couple of, of, of solutions. First, we need to have, uh, you know, basically automated processes where it's almost like a reflex. Mm -hmm. As the patient, is the patient going to start treatment with this, uh, you know, whatever, chemoimmunotherapy in first line for non-cell -non lung cancer? Okay, let's run biomarker, you know, assessment. Has the patient been tested with NGS? Yes or no? Um, I don't see it. Okay. Uh, we need to authorize this right away, but the patient needs to get a testing before we authorize this. So mm. once the power of the purse is there, people are, oh, I'm going to test right away, right? So yeah, let me just yeah. sign this form because you you cannot, I mean, you cannot even believe this. I have had patients who really need biomarker testing and we help the patient to fill the forms of five different NGS vendors that they we had checked they used. It said, sign any of this. And the physician goes there and says, yeah, I'll sign it. And then the form stays at the office on by the fax machine. And it doesn't get signed for like sometimes never. Oh, and hmm. it's fully pre-filled. They just need to sign it. Whichever vendor they use, it doesn't need, we don't even say, oh, use you know XYZ. No, it's just get it tested. And some, you know, it becomes so out of mind that they don't even get it done. So I think the insurances have to say, wait a minute. We need to know if this patient has a biomarker testing or not, because that opens the, the door for clinical trials yeah. and opens the door for, you know, optimized options instead of, you know, therapies that are not available. So that's the first part. Mm -hmm. The second is making it automatable. So a physician basically has a way to go. So, okay, you have one token uh, to get this testing done in like you have like one life in Mario, right? You said you this, just play mm -hmm. this one. And now you, you had your testing that you needed to get done the same way as they do it for, you know, PET scans in pancreas cancer, you're only allowed to have like one time, I believe, but you actually get it done. So can insurances do that? Of course, they can say that. It's like, okay, I will authorize this, but let's get genomic testing on this patient. If, it, if it's negative or nothing, that's okay. You will still have the decision based between your patient and your doctor, but at least that testing got done, right? So that's the, the, the first thing I feel uh, needs to change. And second, having... Uh, um, us physicians, not even to think about it. Just the results are coming in and we have the options in front of us to know what to do for the patient. And if the patient wants to go for a clinical trial, also payers need to realize that a clinical trial is a very good option for the patients. Um, and, and sometimes they say, oh, we have to pay for all these extra things. It's like, well, we're in the US in the right to try era, which basically I can always advocate for any treatment and technically the payer has to pay for it. Why, mm -hmm. instead of spending all that money and those resources in maybe drugs that are not helpful, help the patient and the whole industry and ecosystem by putting the patients on trials that are appropriate for them. So uh, those small changes, which are like one or two decision points at the most, can really completely change the paradigm of how we're treating our cancer patients. So uh, I, I, that's why I joined CancerX and, and we are working on that. Uh, very, you know, judiciously, but we need this power of cross-collaboration. 
because mm -hmm. until everyone realizes this is a real problem and it it takes a couple of steps to solve, it will not happen. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Very good. And can you discuss any recent advances in cancer treatment that you find particularly exciting or promising? Oh yeah, so there is, uh, yeah. you know, in the in the hemonong side, there's all always something coming up. Um, um, that we pass now from an era of the checkpoint inhibitors, uh, where we just, you know, basically awakening the immune system uh, to attack the cancer, to now becoming super um, specific. Be using, you know, things like bispecific antibodies. So having basically the chance of you have the biomarker here. And then you have this the effector cell, and then you combine them together. So basically, bringing them to almost like a like the to a uh, you know a cage fight. So you by you bringing the two players in front, you don't have to have one player look for the the you know the contender. They're all coming in the same stage, right? So uh, I think by specifics are uh, one of the new things that is happening in the space that is going to revolutionize the. Um, the treatment options for our patients. Uh, we are uh, also seeing some light at the end of the tunnel with, with gene editing and CRISPR. So now we have mm. uh, these um, approved therapies for sickle cell, even though it's not cancer. It's, you know, it opens the door to things that are, you know, you know that we can modify uh, potentially to optimize uh, outcomes for our patients. So it's if certain uh, mutations are happening uh, that be, that are driving this whole thing, maybe we can adjust and, and bring those cells back to normality and make mm -hmm. you know those those patterns much more manageable for patients. And sickle cell, we just make a mutation that uh, uh, single change that is making those cells having less you know sickle cell crisis. Uh, can we do the same to maybe pre prevent an oncogenic event that happens as part of a step approach? That's, that will be an interesting way to do this. Or can we modify certain cells to now recognize cancers that have certain mutations? Um, so um, cell adoptive therapy is also now coming into the solid tumor side, uh, which I'm super interested to learn more uh, with more biomarker coming up. So for example, you know, they have like Claudine 18.2. Now we are leveraging her, her to uh, overexpression by using it also in a, in a more, you know, uh, cancer agnostic approach and more biomarker driven approach using, uh, you know, um, now ADCs, um, so antibody drug conjugates, which are actually even better than the prior generations of them because they have a different payload of the um, of the uh, chemotherapy component of them uh, or cytotoxic drug that you attach to it. So uh, I think we are into a new era of combinations uh, of dual targeting and now cell productive therapy becoming a new thing, uh, which uh, I, I think we're gonna be uh, seeing a, a bunch of news uh, coming up soon on this. And, and I think another component that is key is this AI part. Because now mm -hmm. with AI, we can start um, making faster assessments of the efficacy or potential benefit of drugs or molecules that we didn't have before. And the investment into those efforts, I think they're gonna be very fruitful. Uh, so mm -hmm. uh, I, I will not be surprised if we're going to start seeing companies that like recursion and others that are really developing in silico trials and doing end of one for patients and getting patients to uh, remission uh, in real time and hopefully at scale and much cheaper 
than going through the whole development process. But we also require the FDA and other agencies to have uh, a different mindset, right? Uh, that the paradigm has shifted and changed. And we, uh, we had to take a little bit of a different mindset in terms of risk. Uh, because in the past, yes, it makes sense because we're doing things that we had no idea how to interpret them because they were brand new. But now with this development of, you know, different models that are multimodal, we can really predict how potentially patients are going to do with very high fidelity. So uh, I think now we we can uh, make early studies cheaper and, and, and know how the patient's journeys will be. So more to follow on that, but those are very interesting things that I want to follow very closely. Good. Very good. And um, very final question. Um, so for any uh, patients or caregivers listening to this, any advice that you would give them? Always the same advice that I, I want to give my patients is, you know, be your own advocate. Mm. Um, you own your journey. You own, this is your life. So we'll never afraid to let, i never afraid to let my patient go elsewhere to get treatment, to get better options, because I don't have them all. I have a lot of them, and I, I think we're gifted with you know, brains and ability to collaborate. So I have colleagues across the country that I send patients to and we're never offended by sending a patient to a clinical trial or to get different options. So I always want to tell patients and caregivers like, you know, you, this is your life. Think of this as, you know, the, that's the, that's, there's nothing that is going to keep you from, you know, being successful as much as possible by, you know, not asking questions. So use all the tools to your disposal. Uh, you know, there's there's things that you can do, like, you know, for example, with massive bio-empowering with clinical trials, but always ask the question, uh, is there any biomarker, anything, any test that I have not got done that maybe can help me? Mm -hmm. Is there any other option or can we start planning ahead uh, for point, you know, you know, when point A, is there anything from plan B, C, D? Uh, and, and that's all the things that I always want for myself. So if I was in that position, what would I want my doctor, my physician to tell me? So um, always be your own advocate. Uh, I know it sounds, you know, like, you know, oh, you're, you're just reading the same thing and, you know, that logo can be everywhere, like the slogan can be everywhere. But you... Can, you cannot realize how many people don't even think about it. They just simply mm -hmm. go through treatments without realizing anything and they just react to things when there's nothing else. And, and, uh, and remember that we physicians were, were so busy that we wanna help you, but we can only help you when we meet your needs and meet you where you are. So, uh, so that's, that, that's something that I always tell them. And if you want for clinical trials, you know, I'm, that's what, what we do for a living. So, um, you know, happy to be part of the conversation always and helping them uh, whatever they need. So. Brilliant. 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 Yeah. Thanks very much, Arturo. Thank you very much for your time. And we really appreciate it. No, thank and you. Best of luck with uh, Massive Bio. And, and, and it's great to see it grow all the time. Thank yeah. you. Yes. So now this is uh, all coming together. So yeah, we're big in the rocket ship, but once again, we need the fuel, the 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 folks, the staff, and we need the you know the NASA budget. So uh, so that's what we all working together to make it happen. <laughs> Fantastic. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Great. Great. Thank you.
Thank you so much. Perfect.